This podcast is on tribalism and subnational governance. In our second lesson, we talked about foundational narratives, these imagined realities and national mythologies that fueled shared psychological orders, how many people were able to believe in intangible ideas, ideas that did not exist in nature, abstract ideas like nation, state, money, law, human rights, and how this helped allow the first civilizations and eventually the state system. But despite these foundational narratives and these abstract stories, despite social contracts, we see today that clan and clan-like behavior exist in many civil societies and even in many states. The perspective that we will attempt to take is one of as observers, not advocating for any policy, whether it's pro or anti-clanism or tribalism or informal traditional subnational governance. To not judge, quote unquote, tribalism as good or bad, but instead to attempt to describe how the world is now. Oftentimes, the term tribalism is used pejoratively, meant as something primal or primordial, something that's inherently bad. Sometimes it's used as being inherently good, something meaning peaceful or the natural state of things. Now, why is tribes, why is tribalism, why are clans, clanism, and subnational governance, why is this important for influence warfare? First, it informs us to better understand common targets of influence, and those are the informal and traditional sub, and in some cases, transnational governance systems. Secondly, it informs us to better exploit the common means, that is, clan systems, to target non-tribal influence targets. Third, it helps to inform us the means and the ways of dealing with tribes and non-tribal entities alike, as I'll describe. And fourth, in great power competition, it can be argued by some that perhaps the United States government has a relative advantage over Kremlin and Beijing, for example, who historically have ignored clan systems, clanism, and often seem to prefer, at least at some times in some places, to work instead with formal states weak states and strong states alike. So describe clan society, it's helpful to describe what clan society is not, and that is contract society. What do I mean by contract society? This is a society in which people have entered into a social and political contract, where the legitimacy of the authority of the state is, uh, or the, the authority of the state has legitimacy over the individual, where each individual is equal under the law. Of course, this is theory. This is rarely uh, ever in practice, even in Western Europe and North America. In this social and political contract, each person surrenders some individual freedoms for public safety. The state has a near monopoly of violence. That's the idea behind Westphalian realism. And then in theory, strong state institutions are necessary to protect individual rights. Then you have this other thing called clan society. This refers to, in the case of this podcast, for learning purposes, to bloodline, geographic, fictitious, and or ideological clan-like societies and systems. Subnational bodies that can be bound by honor, that group, they put the group before the self. And then sometimes subnational bodies that sell themselves as clans, bound by honor, but in reality, 
defy the ethos and values of what many anthropologists might consider an actual clan. And certainly, this clan society has defined much of the history of mankind outside of empires and most of the world until very modern history. Now, we're going to look at three categories of clan or clanism. The one is describes areas throughout the world today. So we have weak, failing, and failed states, like in some areas in the not-too-distant past in Guatemala and Somalia, for example, and rural areas, megacities of strong states where you'll see clanism, and there's also hybrid states, like Iraq was, for example, between 2001 and, excuse me, between 1991 and 2003, and Afghanistan under the Mustahabin dynasty, and again from 2004 up until a couple months ago. The second study of types of clans that are type of clanism that we're looking at is that which informs us how to approach civil societies writ large. Professor Jared Diamond, anthropologist, writes, Billions of people today still live in partly traditional ways. Embedded even within modern industrial societies are realms where many traditional mechanisms still operate. Many disputes are still resolved by traditional informal mechanisms. And he provides examples of village clusters even in Germany today. And thirdly, we want to look at clans as understanding clanism as a way to deal even with states. So whether it's negotiations or influence warfare. Dr. Mark Weiner suggests, and I quote, grasping tribal impulses and appreciating the range, the range of forms of clan are vital to solving a surprisingly long list of foreign policy challenges. And then, of course, even within strong states, culturally speaking, understand clan society, understand clan history can be important within a state, especially with public diplomacy and some information or strategic communications strategies. So we have this, if you will, imagine an iceberg, and the iceberg is what we see as contract society, what we often study at war colleges as, as, as contract society. The majority of that iceberg, of course, is below water, where you have the lesser studied, lesser seen uh, clan society. So in contract society, we have actual contracts, we have state courts, meaning uh, national courts or state uh, uh, government courts. You have a punitive justice system. Within clan society, we have ideas like honor, revenge, and shame. Personal trust is important, and restorative justice can be important. So I'm going to provide some types of examples of clan society uh, as a stepping off point for our readings and then for our seminar. One is you have certain family clusters. And so in the United States, for example, you'll find clan-like society in some of the Appalachian communities and also in some of the Ozark communities. Then you have bloodline tribes. And you'll see this in Pashto areas or Pashtun areas, excuse me, for example, in Western Pakistan, in Southern Afghanistan. Then you have clans that are bound together by geography, by a valley or a village cluster, for example. And you'll see that throughout Africa and South Asia, for example. Then you have clans that are bound together by physical or artificial block systems. And what I mean by this as a way of an example is the agricultural district of Marja, which was often in the news between 2009 and 2013, where you have tribes that are bound together by canal systems or actual physical canals, and where bloodline tribe heritage is really of 
cultural interest, but not of immediate security interest. Another example of clan or clan-like society is pastoral societies, such as in the Andes, you had the Amara. In northern Scandinavia and Nordic countries, you had the Sami peoples. And in Mali, you have the Turigs. Another example is collectivist agricultural societies, where you have uh, cooperatives between different families, different farms that share access to water systems. This is common in South America and in East and Southeast Asia, such as in Vietnam. Another important aspect to understand clans is, especially in warfare, in irregular warfare, where many militias are comprised actually civilian clan irregulars, something that we've seen in many counterinsurgencies and counter guerrilla campaigns throughout the world. We see that clan-based militias were used by the Romans, they were used by the Mongols, they were used by the Vietnamese, and of course they have been uh, used or they have been leveraged and empowered in some cases by the United States. One of Napoleon's top field marshals noted about Spanish clan-based guerrillas, and I quote, they defended the country in a far more effective manner than the regular war carried on by disciplined armies. Because, and I'm going off the quote now, but trying to paraphrase, because they understood the land, because they were fighting for honor and they were fighting for each other is the idea. And then also in large cities, what some people used to call mega cities, you'll see neighborhood arbiters uh, and informal leaders that help in day-to-day matters, maybe oversee parts of the gray and black markets, as we'll see in Mumbai, in Lagos, and right here in Washington, D.C. Then finally, we have destabilizing or arguably destabilizing groups, uh, and that's up for debate, that some scholars consider clan-like. One is you have urban gangs that try to pass themselves off as quasi-clans. They try to provide them, you know, pass themselves off as being honor-based or somehow blood-bound to each other when oftentimes they're focused on protection and illicit profit. Then you have the Bratva or Yakuza or Cosa Nostra um, focused on the protection of illegal economies, what is oftentimes in movies called the mob or the mafia. So they themselves are not necessarily always in illegal matters or in illegal economies, but they provide protection for illegal economies. And finally, uh, as another way of example of, of arguably destabilizing, sometimes perhaps stabilizing groups that some scholars consider clan-like, is you have drug trafficking organizations and certain cartels that try to brand themselves and often do brand themselves as being honor-based, sometimes with a fictional mythology, but really oftentimes they operate like corporations focused on profit. And then in lesson this uh, for this upcoming lesson, um, or sorry, in seminar for this upcoming lesson and the following lesson, we'll talk about methods to recognize subnational influencers, and we'll talk about some of the strategic missteps in trying to deal with clan and clan-like societies. Thank you.